Thank you, Pastor Sun Kun and uh, Ruth and the team for leading us on a wonderful time of worship and praise to the Lord. Very good afternoon to everyone. I'm so glad to be able to give you the Lord's word. But before I begin, allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will guide my heart and anoint my lips to speak your word with truth and to help your people to understand your will for them. May they not hear my voice, but the voice of you speaking through me, and may they respond in giving glory to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1 to 25. But before I begin, I would like to talk about generation. Do you know that every generation is remembered usually about one or two significant aspects of it. The greatest generation coined in the US to describe those who were born during the Great Depression were also the ones who rose up to fight in World War II. Then there comes the silent generation. Between the Great Depression and the war, it was one of the smallest generation that they had. Then after that was the baby boomers. Many of these generations were born after the war, filled with hope, excitement. The greatest war has really been fought. And so many things were, was, were, were discovered or invented, technological advancement. And slowly, this expanded even beyond uh, the US, these terminologies. I, for myself, am born in Generation X. Anybody Generation X here? I'm sure a few, lah. but not least, I cannot tell who is old and young anymore already. Anyway, this generation, my generation, is quite interesting. We were in a transition. We are the last generation to remember life without mobile phones. We were the last generation to remember life without internet or without cable TV. We remember how to use videotapes, you know, the 60-minute, and the cassette tapes, you know, you have to use a pencil to spin it around. And life, how life was without digitalized. In fact, when I was thinking about this, yeah, at night, very boring, you know, nothing to do at all. And I still believe that our generation was the one we had the best music, you know, but okay, it's subjective. Then there were the millennials born after that, whereby they were born into the world of internet and the digitalizing of many things. And this was also the generation that many started to have fewer children. Then came... Gen Z, a generation that exposed particularly to social media and also had to cope with many digital issues like cyberbullying. And then come Gen Alpha, which is with my children. Hyper-connected, digital life is every part of life, and they also were born during COVID. In fact, there was one funny, maybe not funny, but tragic. This couple had a child born during COVID, and so they named the son COVID. Anybody did that? Very sad, huh? are you? <clears throat> so, every generation will be remembered, and every generation will have an impact to the next, both positively and negatively. There's an article that I read from Lee Kong Chien School of Business talking about breaking the third generation curse. According to the article, there is a Chinese saying that wealth does not, be, does not last beyond three generations. Is correct. In the data that they have, over 20 years surveying 3,500 families, they found out two very, very starking things. 
in two generations, seven out of ten families will lose fortune. In three generations, nine out of ten will lose their fortune. How many of you here are very rich? Are you worried? <laughs> and so the key to the article was the possible, the possible way to beat the odds is education. A quote about generation that I also believe might shed some light about the curse of the third generation is from the author G. Michael Hopf, who wrote post-apocalyptic novels. And he was inspired to write this quote that you might be familiar when he was studying generational theory. And he writes this, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. It's like a vicious cycle. Now, when you talk about men, he's not talking about individuals, but rather nation. How, when a nation goes through great progress and prosperity, it leads to something that almost every generation will experience, some form of weakness and uh, of level of, um, that not, of not progress itself. My main point for this afternoon's message is this first slide brothers and sisters in the lord choose to be the generation that not only leaves a legacy of faith in jesus but also seeks to be better than the previous generation does it sound like a rally speech or a parliamentary speech i wrote this before i watched the pm's recent speech so it's um, original so let me repeat again choose to be the generation that not only leaves a legacy of faith in Jesus, but also seeks to be better than the previous generation. An Indian saying goes, blessed are the old people who plant trees knowing that they shall never sit in the shade of their leaves. The only way a generation can be a great blessing to the next generation is that it looks beyond what it can see and it prepares and plans and even makes sacrifices for the generation that you will never see the benefit of it, nor the fruit. This is what a blessed generation is. And this afternoon, the message is calling for us to be that soul. That do you believe that there are things that you can do now and are you willing to dare to attempt to do things that will affect generations that you will never see? So, in this short narrative, there are three important lessons we ought to learn. The first is, consequences of sin are real and permanent. Second, intergenerational sins can be broken. And the third, every generation will experience the faithfulness of God. Our text is Deuteronomy chapter 2. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 to 3, Moses is actually recounting the past, talking about the things that had happened before. And his intention was to educate and to help the new generation to remember and not forget. Our text, verses 1 to 25, can be easily broken down into two outlines. One is from verse 1 to 13, is talking about the older generation. And verses 14 to 25, it is talking about the new generation. 
because Moses don't want the old gen the new generation to forget the lessons the costly lessons the costly mistakes that the older generation had made and then there are uh, there are many details with regards to um, how to deal with surrounding neighbors and also background of certain tribes and groups and I was telling some of my colleagues or other pastors that you know, I'm very happy when I read this because God doesn't seem to like very tall people. <laughs> because in that account, many of the, okay la, fair la, the very tall people, very, very tall people, the giants, three meters to four meters were cut down. Yeah, so, but I feel a bit happy anyway. Okay. So, but instead of focusing on all these details, I would like to focus on the broader scope these spiritual truths that I think are important and relevant to us today as Christians. So the first one, the consequences of sin are real and permanent. This is the first lesson that we ought to learn. As Moses is giving a brief history of the past, he's reminding and explaining to the new generation why they are here. Why, are they been, why have they been walking in the wilderness for all these years and have not reached the promised land which is just within view? What had happened? Because in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, he recounts how the older generation rebelled against the Lord, against the commandment of the Lord. Yet you would not go up but rebel against the command of the Lord your God. And not only that, and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And so when God heard these things, he responded to them from verses 34 onwards. And the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Verse 35. They were punished, a severe punish. Seriously, a severe punish of not only not being able to enter the land, but to wander around for 40 years. How did this happen? I think from the text, it's telling us this one thing, one thing at least, that the people forgot how their action of sin, of rebelling against God, of disobeying God, bears serious consequences. This is not the first time that they had grumbled or even rebelled against the Lord. As I was tracing through this exodus, first, this nation, or rather this generation, had witnessed the power of God, His power, His glory, through the ten plagues, how He defeated all the Egyptian gods. Not only that, the next number of things, we saw accounts of how the generation had complained. They complained before the crossing of the Red Sea, complained when there was no water, complained there was no food, there was the worship of the golden calf, complained when there was no meat, and finally, according to my calculation, the seventh time they complained of not wanting to enter the promised land. Enough is enough. They had crossed the invisible line that God has placed. Consequences was now to come. Some had actually fallen and been punished for their wickedness, but never had there been a whole generation being punished. But here it was. In the history of complaining and grumbling before the Lord, 
This was a consequence that they had not expected. Now, when the people saw how severe it was, how foolish that they had become, how they had rebelled and distrusted God, they immediately, immediately backtracked and they wanted to do something and recover and say, no, 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 please forgive us. We have sinned. Do not do this to us. We will fight. We will go before you. But it was too late. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 41 to 46, how they responded they say they will not. We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our, our God commanded. And they quickly picked up all the weapons and they went. But God said, I will not be with you. The punishment has been sentenced. This is one thing that I feel that we might be in great danger, especially for our case. Why? Because as Christians, we are fully convinced that Christ died on the cross for all our sins. And the forgiveness is freely available. And that we know that Christ on the cross bore all the punishment and judgment that was meant for us and died. And so with great sense of confidence and boldness as we should have, we cry out to God when we sin against Him and ask Him for forgiveness. But it does not necessarily mean there may be no consequences. A privileged ministry that I get to do is prison ministry with Pastor, um, I want to say Pastor Moses, sorry, Pastor Jeff. <laughs> I think because he's the oldest, maybe, that's right. And uh, Pastor Sanquin and others. I go to meet up the brothers. We call them brothers in the prison. And they have committed offenses against the law of the land. They know that they have been forgiven. They know they have salvation and Jesus loves them, forgive them. But it doesn't mean that they can, they, it doesn't mean that the sentence that they are serving now has been reduced. They still have to face the music. And I feel that sometimes we forget and it has possibly made us a bit more willful in sinning against the Lord. And when we sin, when we see nothing happen, maybe it, if I dare say, embolden us to repeat it again. But I'm sure for those of us who are older, and maybe for us who know more people, that sometimes the Lord says, no, the line has been crossed, I have to discipline you. Another reason why they may have forgotten the consequences can be so severe is because they have their own definition of sin a poor concocted idea whereby it leaves a lot of gaps and flexibility to, to do things that you want to do. One thing is clear is that most of our definition of sin, if it begins with us, how we define it, you can be sure it's not God's definition. And it will lead us to maybe be excuse ourselves to sin against Him. So what is your definition of sin? One good example of someone who kind of redefined his own idea how he saw things that was so contrary how God saw it was Israel's first king, King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, what happened is that God in his final chance told, gave a commandment to King Saul to go forth to destroy the Amalekites. Everything, including the king and all its properties and livestock everything. King Saul went ahead, 
destroyed many things, but some things he kept. The very best of things he kept, the gold, the animal, the first fruits, and even the king himself. And when Samuel spoke to the Lord, the Lord said, that I, I regretted King Saul, and I'm going to send you to speak to him. So the moment Samuel approached and they met, the very first thing, the very first thing that King Saul said to him, Blessed be you to you, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Is it possible for us to be so blind that we think that we are doing God's commandment or we think that we are not sinning, but we are actually in fact sinning? Because Samuel replied, Though he replied that, why, didn't, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And again, he pushed back. He said, no, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission that the Lord sent me. And all the others. Again. And finally, the very famous passage or quote, he says, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. This is something that we could very well be in danger today. And so because of this, a poor idea of sin, or we push the envelope that, you know, we won't have to pay for the consequences. We continue sinning. And finally, one day, God disciplines us and we wonder why. In fact, some of us might respond in indignation and anger with God. How, how, how come I'm going through these bad things? I, I thought I've been forgiven. I thought you are God or Father who loved me so much. Why am I suffering? whereby actually God is using this discipline to remind us where we are and to bring us back to His fold. And so that's why sometimes I think we need to be reminded that our sins, though, can, though are forgiven, and how God doesn't see us as sinful people, but as Christ, there are still consequences that can be born in our lifetime here. So we ought to take note of this. Because whatever the first generation wanted to do, they could not change God's mind. Forty years was the sentence, and they would never enter the promised land. So the consequences of sin are serious and permanent. But yet, so thankful, the, the sins of the first generation does not necessarily mean it has to be the next generation, which leads to our second point. Intergenerational sins can be broken. If you look at, go back to chapter 1, verse 26 to 7, whereby the people rebel against the Lord, and then look at chapter 2, verse 24 to 25, you see how now God is giving the second generation a chance to possess the land, and how He will be with them, and how He will help them to fight this battle itself. So it is wonderful to know from this that God does not automatically bring in the first generation to the second generation. But, but if the second generation doesn't learn the lesson from the first, it can repeat itself. When I was studying for counselling in the US, there was a very important class that I took 
that helped me to see life and people more accurately. The counselling class for that particular day was dealing with intergenerational inter issues, how one generation relation issues and, and mental and emotional health issues can be passed down to the next generation. And the data was very clear. It was obvious that how, when one is brought up in a difficult, toxic, traumatic family environment, it is very possible that the next generation will continue to bear the consequence of it. And very often, people who are in the next generation are not aware that the struggles that they face, the difficulties, the temptation, didn't start with them, but started before them, and somehow was not resolved was not learned, and they repeated again. And it is very painful. And often we think that we are the problem, which we do own it, we are responsible, but we didn't realize that it was something that we were brought up and exposed to. One of the very useful tools that we use into analyzing this intergenerational inter issues was to use a tool called Genogram. A genogram basically is whereby we identify our family and our relatives up to, I think, three tiers. That means to our grandparents. If you can go beyond that, good. And then you begin to identify the connections, how good or how bad they are, interconnection. And what are some possible issues, possibly some things that are very significant that have happened in the past that may have altered the relationship itself. It takes a while to go digging in and every one of us had to do it. And I remember trying to recall back my memory, some of the things, and I had to call up some of my family members to find out, uh, how come this auntie don't talk to this uncle? And, oh, no, that, ah, oh, wow. Not gossip, but you know, it's quite exciting in a sense. <clears throat> okay. As I was doing this, um, I immediately could see a pattern. There was something happening in the generation before mine. And along the way too, um, I discovered something that was shocking, but I was very glad. So what I'm about to share to you is personal. I can't share um, in details. When I was doing this, all of a sudden, I realized that when I was three to four years old, one of my relatives exposed pornography to me. I don't know why I didn't think about it, but all of a sudden I saw, and I remember the incident, it came flooding back. And then when I continued the connection itself, I saw how um, there were many different uh, uh, time, in my, in my timeline, different parts whereby I was exposed to. Of course, you know, I'm the first generation of Christians, so we understand they're not Christians and um, they see things differently. But. I, there was a great sense of relief in that sense for me, but also um, um, some form of uh, revelation because when I was struggling with uh, addiction to pornography when I was young, I couldn't understand why this had such a hold on me, why I feel so trapped, so imprisoned, so powerless. And as much as I tried to fight against it, I kept failing again and again and again and again. And 
when I saw this, it brought relief in that way because I realized that, yes, it's my sin, I still own it, I'm guilty, but it was something that was introduced to me. It was not something that I was born with. And that because of that, it helped me to be even more um, determined to do something about it. By then, I, really, um, I was no longer addicted to pornography, but let me tell you one thing especially, that just because I have overcome, and I'm sure many other men and possibly women overcome, it does not mean that we are impervious to the temptation. It's just that now we are aware and we know how to take steps to avoid ourselves putting into that temptation. So because I had struggled with this and had paid for the consequences of this sin, and one of the consequences was for me, I, I fell into great depression too, and I hated myself. I couldn't get out of it. It was painful, but I thank God by His grace and His love, He pulled me out of it. But because I had suffered, no doubt about it, I was also at the junction whereby I could do something to break the cycle. I could break this intergenerational cycle itself. Because when I had my firstborn, Callum, and then later on, Cohen, I told myself, I'm not going to allow my two young sons to be exposed to pornography and how it plagued and how it had devastated my life. I could break this cycle. Not only break the cycle in my family, but who knows in the unborn generations that my sons may have. My question to you right now is, are you struggling with sins, with weaknesses in your life that could very well be an intergenerational problem? And you wonder why you can't get out of it. Or you wonder why, how did it come to me? Some of you might be aware, but some of you may not be aware at all. But let me tell you something to give you hope. The first way of breaking this cycle is to know your history. One of the things that when I do counseling is when I hear about a certain, a certain person's struggle, I will try to help the person and for myself to find out what had happened. Because I have this, partic I have this particular philosophy whereby all of us are not born out of a vacuum. We are I will tell the person that we are a product of our history and you can't change that. We are a product of our history for how you respond to things, how you behave, what are your likes and dislikes even. You are a product of history in both good and bad ways. But very often, people who have experienced bad or traumatic uh, experiences of life have allowed this to hold and imprison them. And so I also tell them that as much as we are products of our history, we don't have to be a prisoner of the past. You can break free of it. And the wonderful thing is, by the grace and the love of God, it is never too late to break free out of it. So I told myself, I want to break free out of it. And because of this knowledge I, I have and I dealt with it, I'm free of it. I can stop it and not allow this to come into my household and to protect my sons. 
And there are two ways to break this vicious cycle. First, as what Moses is doing, you've got to know your past. You cannot work without knowing because you came from the past. And very often, many of us don't want to pass. We want to move away from the past. But let me tell you as a pastor and one who counsels, the past is just behind you. Even though you may ignore or move away as far as the past, you have not. The past has become a part of you that you are so blind that you don't realize is just behind you. So no. The second thing is there to confront it. Own the past and acknowledge it. This is what the second generation is supposed to learn here. What had happened the 40 years cannot be changed, but it's important for them to know that this is what happened, what their parents did. Acknowledge it, own it, learn from it, so you don't have to repeat it again. It is important. It is painful. But once you dare to do it by the grace of God, it sets you free. Because the grace of God is greater than our sins and our past, which leads to the next point. Why every generation will experience the faithfulness of God. We can break this cycle not because of our strength and our abilities, but because God's faithfulness is greater than any generation. There's a generation that was coming and passing, and another that was arising. And even the great servant Moses would die. But the one who is still permanent is still the Lord. He's greater. And so something that is both comforting and humbling at the same time is to know that our hope and salvation lies not in the generation that we are born in or from in the past, but in the Lord. That is so good to know. That even, let's say, if our generation is not doing well or moving against the Lord, we don't have to follow that path. We can be like Caleb or Joshua to stand out against that generation. But for here, there is such a wonderful hope to know that, that for us, every generation will experience the faithfulness of God. Why it is comforting? Because we know that it's not dependent on the generation but on God. But why is it humbling? Is because of this. The first generation was given the task and the privilege to enter into the promised land, as its other neighboring brothers had, Edom, Moabite, and Ammonite. They had done it. Now it was left to Israel. But they had failed. And even though they had failed and sinned against God, it did not stop God's plan. It may have delayed, but God will raise another generation who will do His work and will. That is why it is humbling. If we as a generation will not answer to the call of God, to the great commission, and to the great responsibility that we have, God will raise another generation. He will not allow any generation to stop or thwart His plans for Him. But the wonderful thing I want to encourage you, encourage you here is this. How would, every, how, how would every generation experience the faithfulness of God is this. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. Here, Moses says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You lacked nothing. 
Moses is speaking with the first generation. God's faithfulness is that even though they were in the wilderness, God has never left them. He has always been with them, providing, feeding them. Even though they are complainers, they murmur, they rebel, God did not stop being faithful to watch and look after them these 40 years. God is faithful. We can entrust in that. We can hold on to that. Even when we go through difficult times, God will never stop being faithful to us. But there's also another side that we've time, time, sometimes we forget, and we don't tend to equate them as the same, but rather as opposing sides, is that as much as God is faithful in His blessings, He is also faithful in His judgments. The 40 years was not changed. In verse 14 to 16, Moses says this, And the time from our leaving of Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zaret was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. Do you see the words, the very strong words that Moses used? Against them, destroy them until they had perished. You see, the blessings of God and the judgment of God are permanent characteristics of God. It's not about choosing one or the other. And sometimes we cannot understand how both can coexist, but they do, as we see here. As they were punished in these 40 years, God provided, but they were punished. So sometimes when we don't understand this, when we, have, when we go through a time of wonderful blessing and enjoyment and when bad things happen or when God allows the consequences of our actions to come through, we get very upset or we, we almost feel surprised or shocked. How, how can God allow this to happen? Why would God uh, allow bad things to happen to me? He does. As a form of discipline to draw us back to Him, to help us to see that the path that we are taking leads to destruction and to help us to seek, him, to seek Him for forgiveness. But at the same time, it is also to bring us great sense of relief to know that even though God may be allowing the consequence of our sins to punish us and to discipline us, He, is not, he has not abandoned us. God is still with us, just as He was with the first generation. That is the confidence that we can have of the faithfulness of God. And the next thing that we can, we can entrust in that even though one generation will come and go and a great leader like Moses will come and go, God still remains. He will do His work. He will achieve His will. And so in chapter 2, verse 24-25, God says that how He will lead, He will give, He will fight, and He will do this work. He, 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 not Moses, not the first generation, God Himself. That is why we can have such great confidence in the faithfulness of God. <clears throat> what does this mean to us? There's this particular person that shared something to me that um, has, res has resonated in my heart and I've never forgotten it. He said that every church is one generation short of extinction. Every church 
is one generation short of extinction. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that even though you and I right now may have a wonderful, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know and love the Word of God, it does not necess necessitate and guarantee that the next generation will also have that too. If we fail on our part, to teach them, to lead them, to be an example to them. One of the things that I was praying about when I was preparing to come back from the States about what God, what possibly God could be tasking me to do. And the thing that was very clear as I was praying and meditating in my heart was this, is that how we need to build the next generation. I mean, there are like 20, 30, 30, not maybe 30, 25 years left for me, maybe. But it's not 25 years for my generation, but 25 years for the next generation. What can I do and contribute in the building of the next generation? Because one day I will also come and go and die too. How can I help in being part of God's plan to build up the next generation for themselves, to discover Jesus for themselves and the gospel and the power of God's word? That is something that, that God made very clear in my heart. And so this is something that we have. In about a year plus time, ARPC at Tingao will be ready. Hopefully, we'll be ready. And then we don't have to go back to ACS. You know, all our celebration can be Easter and Christmas can be at Tingao, right? When God has given us another location, three locations, seven services, seven congregation. Is it for our comfort? to just be happy where, where we are? Or what if God is setting up the next stage for us as a church, as a body of Christ, as a family of God, to spread the gospel, to disciple outside beyond where we are, to push us out of our comfort zone and to have a burden for the hearts of those around us? Would you join? Would you be that generation to respond to the call? I am excited about it, and I hope you are. And how, come, and how can we have such a hope, a greater hope and assurance than the generations that we read in Deuteronomy? And the key person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are three things that I want to tie it as, as we come to a close. How can we apply? Why we can be so hopeful and so optimistic of the future is because Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer tells us that Moses is just a servant, but Jesus is the son. Moses has come, lived, died. But Jesus, though he died, he was also raised from the grave. Moses, we can't call right now, but Jesus is alive with us today right now. He continues to be with us, to lead us. He is as real just as he was when he was born on this earth. That is why we can have such great hope. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses also because Moses himself was sinful, weak and flawed, and he had to pay for his own sin. But Jesus, being the perfect one, took our sin and defeated sin and death. That is why we have a greater hope, by following Jesus. The second thing is also amazing to me is that because of Jesus, the history of Israel is also our history. 
Can you believe that? In Romans, Paul would argue that how not all who call themselves Jew externally is a Jew. It is the one who is internally Jewish that he is Jew, the one who exercised faith as Abraham in believing in God. When we exercise faith in believing in Jesus, and Jesus is our Messiah, our Christ, our Lord, our Saviour, He is our brother, our King, the history of Israel is also ours too. So what is written for us in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, and all these things is for us to learn from these generations so that we would learn from them and be better and not make the same mistakes. For those of us who may have who have studied history, we know this particular uh, saying, those who do not know history are bound to repeat history. This is given to us so that we do not repeat, that we learn from it because this is our history too. And the last one, because of Jesus, even though you and I may be suffering either from the consequences of our direct sin or the consequences from the previous generation as how they wanted in 40 years. The consequences of sin is not to destroy us as how God intended, but it is to help us to grow, to thrive, to become like Jesus. How can I be sure in that? Because in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells the Philippian church that everything that he has attained and achieved, he calls them rubbish and that he wants to know Jesus as he has never known before, not only in the power of his resurrection and in intimacy, but also in the fellowship of suffering. And I always found it very interesting. Why did he talk about that? Because suffering brings us to an intimate relationship that others cannot. The connection and the bonds that are formed in suffering help us to see things and to be connected in ways that other ways cannot. So when we suffer, either the consequences of our sin or maybe because of the discipline of God, it's not to destroy us, but it is to thrive us, that we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The suffering has a purpose, a higher purpose to help us to become more like Christ. And so coming back to the first slide again, my challenge to you this afternoon as you hear this word from God speaking to you, would you, as of this moment, be the generation that not only seeks to leave a legacy of faith, not failure, faith in Jesus, but also seeks to be better than the previous because of the opportunities and the things that you have that the previous generation didn't have? Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And even though the account and the words were written thousands of years ago, it still brings relevancy today. And how we need it, how we need to remember how sin is deadly and how it is serious. But yet, Father, how it can also be broken by your power, by your grace. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters here that they will take the word that they heard deep into their hearts and allow you to begin that wonderful transformation of raising a generation of people 
who love the Lord, who love His church, and to go forth to do that great work that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.